Welcome to the Renewal Church Podcast. We exist so that people will be made new in Jesus, grow in Jesus, and be released into the world for Jesus. We pray that God will bless you today with the truth of His Word. Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 9, going all the way to verse 15. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh the circumcision of Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Okay, um, I want to start us off with a very simple activity. I want you to take 30 to 45 seconds right where you're at, and I want you to just by yourself at your seat, I want you to answer one question. So take your scripture journal, if you've got a scripture journal, or your own little, whatever you take notes on, or if you don't have anything to write with, take your phone and pull out your notes app. Um, And I want everyone to answer this one question. You don't have to share it with anybody. We're not going to make you read it out loud. This is just for you, okay? So pull that out. Here's the question that I want you to answer before we jump into our text. Here's the question. Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Take about 30, 30 to 45 seconds and jot something down. And just think about that. Why did Jesus have to die? So as we go through this this morning, my encouragement to you is to keep track and add on to that as we walk through the text. And my hope is what you, I hope that you'll see at the end all that God taught you. Um, so let me just say this. There, there, I asked you to do that because there is one question that I think every Christian must know how to answer. And, and I hope that as believers, you are always studying, right? Always growing, always digging into God's word. Um, you can never know too much about God. And, and most of you know, the more you learn about God, the more you realize you just don't know. But we should all strive to know the deepest parts of God. But there's one question that every follower of Christ should master. Now, for most of us in here, for some of us, we may not be able to explain how God operates outside of time or the difference between a premillennial and a millennial, but it doesn't matter, honestly, because every person should be able to answer the question, why did Jesus have to die? And our text today is going to answer that question. By using Colossians 2, verses 9 through 16, we are going to see three things. So like a good old boy, here are my three points today. I usually don't have three points. So for you note takers, rejoice. Here's, yay, I hear it, right? 
Um, here's three points that have about 18 million subpoints, just FYI. Um, but here's my three points, and they all have the letter P. I even alliterated for you this morning. Here we go, three points. One, the problem of sin. The problem of sin. Two, the, providu- uh, the providential solution. The providential solution. And three, hmm. The promises of salvation. The problem of sin, the providential solution, and the promises of salvation. We are following Paul's cue today, and we are going back to the basics. And before we jump in, let me say this. If you are someone in here, uh, my assumption is that even in a room this small, we have people that are in this camp. If you are someone in here um, who you're not really sure if you're a follower of Jesus, or even taking a step further, you're not really sure if you want to be a follower of Jesus. Like, if you're honest, um, maybe you're here because someone invited you and you're appeasing them, maybe, and you're being nice, you're being gracious, or this is just what we do in Texas as we go to church. Um, or maybe you're just not sure if you're here at all, why, why you're here at all. That was my story. I started going to, ch- to church, and the whole time I couldn't tell you why I was there. I would make fun of the cheesy songs, like the songs we played this morning. I would have walked out of here and made fun of you for raising your hands. I would have. I rolled my eyes at the preacher, um, and if someone asked me why I was going to church, I wouldn't have an answer. But you know what happened? I just kept coming back. Every week, I just kept coming back, and I couldn't tell you why. I mean, now I could, but at the time, I just couldn't tell you why. And so if that's you, let me implore you, implore you if you were ever going to sit in your seat and give your attention to the Scriptures, I, I pray that it's today. I fully believe that God wants to do something in your life in the next 30 minutes or so. And then also, if you're someone who maybe you are in the midst of incredible doubt or difficult circumstances or you feel the slavery to sin, my prayer for you is that the gospel of God's grace would just wrap its arms around you and you would know that your God has got you, that he has you. And for everyone else, my prayer is that you're reminded of the grace of God, that it would just continue to fan the flame of passion for his name's sake. So with that said, let's jump in. Our point, first point, look how organized this is. My first point is the problem of sin. So Paul is going to give us three, and by the way, we're going to be jumping all up and down. It's not necessarily in the order of the scriptures. We're kind of going to jump around and look at these three different things. So Let's start by talking about the problem of sin. Paul is going to give us three different phrases that directly address the problem of sin. First, he's going to say in verse 13, verse 13 that you were dead in your trespasses. And in order to understand that phrase, we have to go back to the beginning of the Bible. So grab your Bible or your digital device and go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1, all the way to the beginning. Remember, Genesis 1 and 2, God has created the world. He has created Adam and Eve. They walk with God in joy and peace. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, where everything falls apart. Verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, who's the serpent in this story? Revelation 12, 9 actually 
tells us and gives us clarity on this. So Revelation 12, 9, it says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the devil comes to Eve in the garden and essentially says, and by the way, if you remember from last week, what Satan does here is he basically presents a plausible argument to Eve. And pay attention to it. It says, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, a couple observations here. First, did God say that you can eat fruit? Kind of. It was way more than that, by the way. Genesis 2.16 it says, and the Lord commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. Some translations say in the original Hebrew, it's eat, eat. You may eat, eat. That in Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat them. And so God says, hey, Adam and Eve, eat, eat. Enjoy all that I have for you. God was saying to them, I have created this so that you can find joy in my glory in this place. And here in this moment, Eve says, he said we can have some fruit. She downplays the gifts of God. Now, then she says, uh, God said we can't touch the tree. Now, did God say that she can't touch the tree? No. He, said, he just said, don't eat from it. She can touch it. She can carve Adam and Eve forever in that tree if she wants to. She can put a swing in that tree. She can put a fort in that tree. You can touch the tree you just can't eat from it. And she says, if we touch the tree, we will die. And that's not entirely what God said. God said, you will surely die. You will die, die. It's repeated again. If you do what I commanded you not to do, then you will surely die. Verse 4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So a little side note here, the argument that the devil presents to Eve is eerily similar to the one that Paul is addressing in Colossae. Eve, if you do these, this thing, then you will have knowledge. If you go outside of God, then you will experience the fullness of life. Your eyes will be opened. Eve, what God is giving you is not enough. There is better treasure outside of him. It's the same argument that we see in Colossae, and it's the same argument that remains today. If you want to find fullness in life, then you have to go outside of God to find it. So look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And remember, what did God say happened if they ate from the tree of knowledge and good and evil. He said they would die, right? And as you look throughout the scriptures, it is clear that this is not only talking about physical death, but this is talking about spiritual death as well. That this death is a spiritual one. Where once Adam and Eve were able to walk with God in the cool of the day, they were able to enjoy God, talk to God, worship God in complete freedom, now all of that is dead. And now the human is marked not by holiness in the garden, but now humanity is marked by sin. And Paul will tell us that that rejection, that the original sin of Adam and Eve 
lives in every single person that has ever existed. Romans 5.12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Not just physical, but spiritual, that we, we are literally the walking dead without Christ. And throughout Scripture, God will use several hard words to describe the effects of this. He will say that we have rebelled, that we have rejected, that we have been separated from God, that we are children of wrath. He will say that we are alienated from God, that we are hostile to God. Over and over, Scripture will make it painfully clear, you have been disconnected from your God. And as a dead person, you cannot do anything about it. It's not like you're just a little bit dead. It's not like you're drowning, and if you just reach out your hand, then God will pull you out of the water. No, that we without Christ are at the bottom of the ocean, and we're not breathing. We're incapable of coming up for air. And so that's the first problem. No big deal, right? You're dead. The second problem that he mentions in verse 14 is he says that there is a record of debt that stands against us. So that word record, it's the combination of the words hand and written, okay? Paul uses the word record, handwritten, because in the Greco-Roman world, much like our world today, they would handwrite when you purchase something on credit. So if you owed a debt to someone, you would write out what you bought and sign it as a way of saying, I am taking this from you, and I am committing to pay you back. And if you did not pay the person what you owed, then you could take them to court and you could pull out that document and say, no, I have a record here of what you owe me. There would be proof that you, in fact, have a debt to pay. It's interesting. The book of Deuteronomy, if you didn't know this, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is written like a legal document in the way it's structured. It's written like a legal document that God told his people and he structured it in a way where he said, I am entering a legal contract with you. He called it a covenant. If you obey me, I will bless. If you disobey, I will judge. And time and time again, the people of God did not keep up their end of the covenant. covenant. And because of that, there is a legal precedent. Think about that. There is a legal precedent for judgment to be given. There is a paper trail in God's hands of the debts that you and I have incurred against him. God has a record of your debt. Everything, from the smallest to the biggest, from the thing that you actually did to the thoughts that you had, he has a record of the debt that you have. He has a record of the debt, and he has a right as God to judge you for it. Paul says there are legal demands. The judge cannot act as if these debts debts do not exist. If a judge in Bell County did not execute justice according to his oath, then we would remove him from office, wouldn't we? And according to the nature of God, he cannot just ignore the debt. He would be unjust at that point. The debt must be paid. And so that's our second problem. We have a record of debt against God. And then our third problem is the uncircumcision of our flesh. So when you see that word circumcision in Scripture, um, the first thing I, I hope that you would think of is the word status, 
okay? So my status at Renewal Church is one of your pastors. That's part of my identity to you. And because of that, you have certain expectations to me. My status to this country is citizen. And because of that status, I have certain rights as a, part of the, as a citizen of the United States of America. My status to Katie is husband, right? And because of that, there are certain expectations. Take out the trash, which I forgot to do yesterday, right? There are certain expectations that come with being a husband or a wife. And so circumcision in the Old Testament was a physical mark given to the people of God that established their status in the world. It was an outward symbol of a covenantal relationship between the Jewish people and God, that God told them, you are my chosen people, and circumcision is the symbol that will display your status as my people in this world. So a Jewish boy, when he was eight days old, he would go and he would be circumcised. It was not earned by anything that that little baby had done. It was a right that was given to him simply because God chose to make the Jewish people his people. I was born, and now I enter into this relationship with God. And since my status is chosen by God, I now have all the rights and privileges that come with being in this relationship with God. And the symbol of circumcision was meant, here's the big goal, it was meant to be an outward sign of what God does with the hearts. And so in Deuteronomy 36, it should be on the screen, it says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts, your hearts and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all of your hearts and with all of your soul that you may live. That the idea was that through circumcision, you are cutting away what's dead. You are cutting, it's a cutting away of the flesh. So when God says he will circumcise your heart, he is saying, I will cut away what is dead so that you can love me. This is why in Ezekiel, God says, Ezekiel 36, 26, he says, and I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. So when Paul says, you were the uncircumcision of the flesh, he is saying that the dead stuff still remained. You can't walk in his statues. You don't love the Lord your God because all that has been dead, all that is dead has not been cut away. You have a heart of stone. So because of the problem of sin, you are dead in your trespasses. There is a record of debt that stands against you, and that record of debt has legal demands, and you are the uncircumcised. What is dead has not been removed. And so let's make sure we understand the gravity of the situation. When you have a problem, you need a solution that has an equal weight, correct? You need a solution that has equal weight. So, for example, if you have a cut, you need a Band-Aid. If you have the flu, you need some meds, you need some fluids, you need some sleep. If you have cancer, you need specialists, you need chemo, maybe a surgeon. If you're dead, what do you need? You need a miracle. It has to have equal Wait, and so the answer to the problem of sin was one of equal weight. It was God's providential solution. Now, 
real quick, let me say something about that word providence. I've told you this before. That word providence comes from the word provide. Pro, Latin word for forward or in front of or on behalf of. You might be familiar with words like pro-life or proactive. One is on the behalf of something. The other is to move forward on something. And then vide, which means to see in Latin. So Julius Caesar famously said, I came, I saw, I conquered. Vini, vidi, vici. Vidi in that statement is the phrase, I saw. So providence means to see forward. And it's not just foreknowledge, knowing something before it happens. It's, it's, it's more than that. For example, we have an idiom in English, see to that. Will you see to that? Will you take the steps to make sure it happens? So God's providence is God seeing to everything. He sees to it that it happens. And here's the solution. God saw to it. He made sure that he would bring a solution to the problem of sin. He tells us that our trespasses have been forgiven, our record of debt canceled. And in verse 9, you see how God would do those things. So Colossians 2.9, we're going finally to the beginning. He says, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. What does that word bodily mean? Body. Easy questions, okay? So listen, here is God's providential solution for us. God says, I will come for you. I will come for you. I will do it. For in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The deity will dwell in a body, divine in humanity, and we have to make sure we understand this. It's not as if Jesus was 50% human and 50% God. He was 100% human and 100% God, okay? That theologians will often use two words to describe verse 9. Um, one, you will hear the word incarnation. So think of the word meat or flesh in Spanish, carne, right? In carne, in flesh, that God his solution was to put on flesh, holiness put on humanity, and he dwelled among us. The deity dwelled bodily. The second way you will hear verse 9 described is a term known as the hypostatic union, okay? The hypostatic union. I know that's a mouthful. Um, that, that in Jesus, there are two complete natures, one fully human and one fully divine, divine. And these two natures are united and complete in the person of Jesus. And this act by God, putting on flesh and walking among us, it was not random. It was not a purposeless act. It was planned long ago by a God of mercy and justice. It was in God's providence that he saw to it. He made sure it happened. He made sure that someone came for us. And your Old Testament is, this, is that unfolding story. It's the unfolding story of the coming of Jesus, right? I mean, in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin in the garden. God looks at the serpent and says, hey, the offspring of Eve, the offspring of a woman is going to come and crush your head. And Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham and says, hey, Abraham, I want you to leave this land to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to make you a nation. And from you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And then what is the rest of your Old Testament? It is following the line of Abraham <laughs> all the way until Jesus. And so when you get to the Gospels, the Gospel 
of Matthew says, the son of Abraham, Jesus, right? Someone is coming. That's the story. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. Over and over, the scriptures will point to the future and declare someone is coming. Do you remember Jesus' first sermon? Let me read it to you, okay? In Luke 4, Jesus stands up in the synagogue and he picks up a scroll. Let, let me read it. Luke 4, 16. It says, he came to Nazareth, talking about Jesus, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And so Jesus unrolls the scroll and he found the place where it was written. He was looking for something specific. And so he reads this in front of everyone out of Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it says, look at verse 20. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He essentially tells them, the he that Isaiah talked about, it's me. I have been sent to proclaim liberty to the captive. The one that you have been waiting for, I'm here. And throughout the Old Testament, God would establish a sacrificial system because God's people, as God's people, they needed a way to be able to have fellowship with God. They were separated from God. That sin separated God's people from himself. And, and, and I want you to hear this next part. Because I think when we talk about being dead and being alienated and rebellion, we kind of get this idea that God hates us in some way. Just because sin is present and we are separated from God does not mean that God doesn't desire to be with his people. We've got to understand that. Just because we are dead, just because we are separated does not mean that God does not desire to be with his people. He can't because there is no justice done there. Sin remains, but he desires to. And so therefore, in the Old Testament, you see why he creates a sacrificial system because as God's people, they needed a way to be able to fellowship with God. Sin separated, but God desires. And so he, in his providence, made happen. And so through a pure sacrifice, God would say, would you be able to atone for your sin? That God established, if you want forgiveness, if you want to enjoy me, to have fellowship with me, then something pure must cover up your sin. Leviticus 17.11. It says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement to appease the wrath of God, to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. That God would say, if you want to have fellowship with me, it's got to go through the blood. Something pure has to cover. The night before Jesus would die, he would sit with his disciples and he would make this statement, Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. And on the cross, the perfect sacrifice, God in the flesh would submit himself to his Father. And with his final words, all that picture of what the sacrificial system was, what it pointed to, was complete. He would say, it is finished. Hebrews 10, 11 says, every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. Verse 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Come on. In that moment, God saw to it. He saw to it. He made sure that it happened, that your trespasses were forgiven. The solution to the problem of sin was God himself. I, you, we all were incapable of paying off that record of debt, so God stepped down. He dwelled with us, and Paul says he took that record of debt on himself. He canceled it. I mean, think about that. Like, really, think about that. It's, it's, it's this weird phrase that Paul uses, but he literally nailed that handwritten paper that every sin you've ever done, every trespass you've ever had, every thought of rebellion that you've ever had about God was written on that piece of paper, and it was nailed to the cross. All of its legal demands on that paper were paid by Jesus. And where you once stood in judgment, now you stand in freedom. I mean, can you picture it? The things that you thought you would never do, the things that you don't even know that you've done, on that paper, on that cross. And Paul said he nailed it there. Here's what we have to understand about the chasm that exists between us and God and what the solution does. Once humanity took on the sin of Adam, the original sin, once we took on the original sin, it created an irreconcilable separation between us and God. If we want peace with God, if we want fellowship with God, if we want to try to attempt to, to knock down that wall of hostility that exists between us and God, if we want to remove the sin from our lives, we have to be holy like God. The law, all those rules in the Old Testament, you have to keep all of those. And Romans says that the law reveals our sin. We can't do it. There is no bridge that we can build that would make us be able to cross that gap. God is out of our reach. He is unobtainable, and he is unmovable. He's holy. We're dead. And it doesn't matter how many Bible stories you know, how, how long you've gone to church. The gap without Christ is a lot further than you think it is. So if we want forgiveness, we have to submit to the reality that peace with God is out of my reach. We are unable to move towards God. And here's the good news of the gospel. God has moved towards you. You can't climb that mountain. He's come down. How does Paul say it? The record of debt. He canceled it. It's gone. It's, your sin is gone. Did you know that? It's as far as the east is from the west. He interposed his precious blood. He paid for it so that God, listen, he paid for it so that God could maintain a standard of justice, right? He did it, and he did not compromise his 
holiness. God will not and cannot give a pass for sin. He is just, yet he is also the justifier of the sinner. You are forgiven because Jesus paid it all. And did you know, did you know that God planned to do that before you were even born? How cool is that? That Paul will say in Ephesians 1 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. He chose, he predestined us to adopt us as sons through Jesus Christ. That in love, he came and got you and showed mercy on you. Jesus is the providential solution of sin. He sees to it that we are free from condemnation. And that leads to our last section, the promises of salvation. And there are so many in this section, okay? Paul will say that you have been filled in him. You are circumcised by Christ. You are made alive in Christ. You were buried with him in baptism and raised by his resurrection. And so let me briefly go through all the promises of salvation, which I'm really excited about. Don't fall asleep. I'm excited. So I will throw stuff at you. Verse 10, and you have been filled in him. This is the promise. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Remember the argument that these believers in Colossae are facing. It is the argument that in order to find the fullness of knowledge, they need to go outside of Christ, that they need to be filled by something other than Christ. And Paul is saying, no, you have been filled in him, in Christ. He's the head of all rule and authority. You don't need anything else other than the one who is in charge, and the one who is in charge has filled you. You might say, well, what does that even mean? What has he filled me with? We'll look at the next verse, verse 11. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. He says, in him you were circumcised. And this circumcision was not done by hands. Man had nothing to do with it. He's essentially saying here, hey, the deadness towards God, the flesh that was set against God, that has been removed by the circumcision of Christ. He has removed the heart of stone. And because of the circumcision of Christ, he has moved you from dead to alive. Verse 13, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. Now, let me address what could be a temptation for you to check out on this point. And this is going to be kind of a weird analogy, just to warn you. Um, because we, we have to understand the significance of this passage some of you might either explicitly or even subconsciously um, think something like, okay, but I'm not really dead. Like, outside of Christ, I'm not really dead. Like, there are people out there who have done a lot worse things than I have. Have right? you ever thought that? Like, like, they're dead. Surely the Bible's talking about them, right? Well, in the Gospels, we get three different occasions where Jesus raised someone from the dead. You remember them? The first one was Jairus' daughter. Right? She had only been dead a few minutes when Jesus brings her back to life. The second was a young man that had died just the day before. Jesus walks up during, it's a crazy story. Jesus walks up during a funeral procession. Uh, his friends are taking him to be buried, and Jesus literally stops the procession and raises this guy from the dead. And then they're like dancing in the streets. Um, awesome story. The third person was Lazarus. Lazarus had been dead for several days. Jesus shows up to Lazarus' tomb and says, hey, open it up, and he calls for Lazarus to get out, 
and Lazarus starts walking around. Now, think about this. In each of these occasions, and this is the weird part, so stay with me. In each of these occasions, the corruption of their bodies would have been different, right? The little girl would have still had some color to her. She would have still appeared alive. The young man that had been dead a day would have been lifeless. He would have been cold, but the body would still look normal. Lazarus' body would have been a mess. So much so that when Jesus tells them to open up the tomb, Lazarus' sister says, don't do it, he's going to stink. In each of these occasions, we can agree that although they were in different stages of death, they would have been equally dead, right? There isn't different levels of death. The only difference between them was how much the corruption of death externally showed. But each one of them needed the same miracle, right? Jesus didn't need to give extra grace, extra power to Lazarus than he did the little girl. It's the same miracle. Each one of them needed the power of Jesus. And what can be tempting for us to say is, well, I'm not that bad. There are crazy people doing all sorts of stuff. But here's what we need to understand. It doesn't matter how much the corruption shows. Dead is dead. And that's all of our stories. That Jesus stepped into our lives. He loved us. He did something that was beyond our abilities. You have been made alive. Listen, if you are in Christ, you are a walking miracle. Because the power of Jesus has raised you to life. Only the hand of the risen king could have done that. Only the one who conquered death could have made you alive. It, was an, it is an act of divine power, but also an act of grace. And that's why Paul says in verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. So here's a question. How do you know that the debt that you owed was paid? How do you know that the debt that you owed was paid? How do you know that the death of Christ actually has power to forgive sins? So here's an example. If you go to a restaurant, they will hand a check to you after you're done eating, correct? The check is your record of debt. You now owe them something. And if you try to leave without paying that check, they will stop you because you have a debt. You can't pay, and if you can't pay, there's going to be some kind of judgment for you. Cops might get called, maybe they make you wash the dishes, whatever. There's going to be some kind of judgment. But it's only when payment is complete that you can walk out of that restaurant. And the Bible will say, the payment of our sins is death. But here's the deal. Think about it. Jesus had no sin of his own on that cross. Jesus had no sin of his own own on that cross. He did not have a debt. There was no check given to him besides the one that we gave to him. He took on our debt. Our check was given to Jesus. And if that debt was never paid, then where would Jesus be right now? He'd be in the grave. If our debt, if the check that was given to Jesus was never paid, he would still be in the grave. How do we know that Jesus' death was sufficient to forgive sins? Because the grave could not hold him. 
The grave couldn't hold him. The payment was sufficient, and so he walked out of that tomb. This is why Paul says, you have been buried with him. That when you get baptized, you are saying that my sin was buried with him. It's gone. He paid my debt. I was dead, and the sin that killed me is in the grave with him. And I know that the debt was paid because he walked out of that grave, and the promise of salvation is that I am made alive just like he is alive. Paul says it is by faith that this is possible. The grace of God is not obtained. It's not earned. It is credited to you by faith alone. God would open our eyes to see the risen king. And in this promise of salvation, you need to know that the enemy that tries to confuse you, to misguide you, to remind you of the shame that you've done, Paul says, this is why he says it. He says, that enemy has been disarmed. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he says he put them to open shame. Remember what we talked about last week, that Paul told his church in Colossae, hey, this philosophy, this teaching that is attempting to lead you away from Christ, it is being fueled and driven by demonic power. Paul says those powers have been disarmed. I mean, think about it. What is one of the primary ways that the enemy will go after you? He will try to convince you that fullness, that life is found outside of God. That's one way. He will try to convince you that you are still separated from God, that you still have shame over sin that you have repented of, that God still holds you in judgment in one way or another. Over and over, he will remind you, try to remind you, try to convince you that in some way you are still separated from God. So the next time you hear that voice inside of your head, try to tell you that you still have or try to tell you that you're still separated, that you're not worthy, right? that you're not a son or a daughter, that victory cannot be had over sin, you can preach the gospel back to that voice and say, no, you have been disarmed. You can say, no, you have been put to open shame. And then and Paul says, he has triumphed over them. What does that mean? Um, during this time, a triumph was not a picture of something. It was a physical event that would happen. It was like a parade. If you were a conquering king, you would ride back into your city as a, symbol, as a symbol of your victory. The triumph is not the victory itself. The triumph is the after party. It's the after party. It's the celebration. And who gets to be a part of the triumph? We do. We get to be part of the triumph. Every day, Christ is the head of the body, is leading his people in a triumph. Our God has gone to battle. He has risen from that grave. He has come from that battle victoriously, and now we parade through the streets in celebration. And we celebrate our king, and that act alone puts the enemy into open shame because he has no power over us. So I need to wrap this up. I want to ask you a series of questions. And as I walk through these, I want you to answer in your head yes or no. Okay? So here's the question. Do you believe that God put on flesh and dwelled among us? Do you believe that he was fully God and fully man? Do you believe that without Christ, you are hostile to God and in judgment? Do you believe that he died on the cross? Do you believe that your sin was nailed to the cross with him? Do you believe that that act canceled your record of debt? against God. 
Do you believe that he rose from the grave in victory over death? And do you believe that the only way to salvation is by faith alone? If your answer to those questions, we know Pam answered yes. (laughs) But if your answer to those questions is a resounding yes, you can find rest and confidence and peace because he's got you by faith alone. Have you noticed that phrase in him being used over and over again in these first two chapters? It is constant. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption. Verse 16, in him all things were created. Verse 19, in him all the fullness was pleased to dwell. Verse 22, we are reconciled in his body of flesh. Colossians 2, 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Verse 7, walk in him, rooted and built up in him. Verse 9, in him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Verse 11, you have been filled in him, circumcised in him. Verse 12, raised up in him. Verse 15, triumphing triumphing over them in him. Paul really wants these believers to know that you are in him. If I could remind you, because I think this is where the enemy goes after us. If I could, I think we walk through this world sometimes and we hear that voice that is always trying to tell us you're not in him. 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 And what Paul is saying is no, you are in him. He's got you. So the next time Satan tries to tempt you with despair, the next time that little voice in your head tries to tell you that the fullness of all things of life is found outside of Christ, you can say back to that voice, no, I'm in him. As Romans 8, 34 says, who is to condemn? Who's going to condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So listen, if you've never put your faith in Christ, and I, I implore you to consider what do you hope your life aims to be? Because I can tell you Jesus is better than anything you will ever find. He's better than anything else. And so if you've never put your faith in Christ and said, no, I, I believe that he died. I'm, I, I'm, God has opened my eyes. Then I implore you to talk to myself or someone in your small group, whoever brought you, whatever, because he's better than anything else. Don't waste your life. Thank you for listening. Renewal Church is located in the center of Bell County, Texas. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. For more information about the mission of Renewal, go to renewalchurch.net.